Hi there, and welcome back to The G Word. My name is Chris Wigley. I'm the Chief Exec at Genomics England and your host for this podcast. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're sharing a live recording of a recent discussion at the Public Policy Project's Global Genomics Conference, in which we talked about a lot of policy topics, things like data, ethics, and education, as genomics comes into the mainstream, which, as you all know, if you're a regular listener, is a topic that we love on this pod. So my discussion was with Jenya Dana, PhD, who is the global head of health policy at Avalino, which is a biotech company. And until recently, she was the head of international health policy at the World Economic Forum. So she has a pretty broad perspective on these and a bunch of other topics as well. Hope you enjoy the episode. It's my huge pleasure to be in conversation with Jenny Adena today from Avelino Lab. She runs global health policy at that company and before that was leading precision medicine and healthcare programs at the World Economic Forum. We were talking earlier today and uh, Jenny was saying that she's just about surviving the FOMO of, uh, of not being in Davos this week, but um, it's a, a, bit of a bit of a shift and we're going to get on to some of those shifts in life as we, um, as we talk through uh, Jenny's stories and her thoughts about where we're at in the world. Jenny, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think it's, it's a bit of a classic G-word question, but most people are not born as the head of healthcare at the World Economic Forum. You actually have a really interesting, I don't know if it's a backstory or just a story, but tell us a little bit about how little Jenny became kind of big Jenny. <laughs> so I was in high school biology class in rural southern Mississippi in the United States. And they showed a video of the sequencing of the human genome. And I thought, this is the most fascinating thing I have ever seen. This is what I want to do with my life. And I am going to go to college and I'm going to become a genetic engineer. And I am going to leave this farm, this town, move on, get on with life, do bigger things. And my ticket out is really through the pathway of science. So I did that. So I know they got some extreme weather events in the sort of the deep south, but that sounds like a real lightning bolt kind of uh, moment. Wow. Before that, had you had a big interest in science or it was just a sort of aha moment? My father was a PhD in oceanography. And he had, along with my mother, made a decision to leave behind a career in academia in California and return to the land. So my father and his family is from Mississippi, the Deep South, and they went there and bought 40 acres of land and became farmers, which is where I was born and raised. So I wouldn't say that it was a bolt from the sky. I would say that my father and I spent quite a bit of time together um, throughout childhood and into the high school years, um, looking at everything from you know, the plants and, and talking through the Latin names of those plants to getting your hands literally dirty uh, in the soil and, and building a farm you know, from the ground up. Well, I have to say it is a source of enduring shame for me personally that any time my kids ask me, what's that tree or what's that flower? <laughs> I'm so useless, let alone, let alone actually knowing the, uh, the Latin names for them. Um, that is hugely impressive. So you went to college, studied to become a genetic engineer, um, you know, embracing the future. What sort of things have you done since then, um, I guess, from there to sort of the World Economic Forum? So I took a turn in a fruit fly lab in college and discovered actually that 
if this was going to be genetics, which was just swapping around fruit flies and vials uh, twice a day, including on the weekends, that this was actually maybe not the uh, fascinating and uh, very exciting path to science that I thought it was. So I had an existential crisis, to be honest. I, did, I got the science degree. I, I love all aspects of science, uh, genomics and molecular biology, but I thought, well, what, do I, what can I do with this training that doesn't involve bench science or, or lab work? I went to work for finance to pay the bills for a while, but then I started volunteering with a local nonprofit organization um, up in, in Minnesota in the Midwest where I'd moved to. And they were working on agriculture and trade policy. And this was the period of time where there was a trade dispute between the United States and Europe over genetically modified organisms. And the questions around the acceptance of genetically modified organisms were scientific in nature, but they were also tremendously political and economic. And I thought, ah, okay. I'm from a farm. I understand agriculture. I understand what a genome is. I understand genomic engineering. And now I see where it can all come together. And I went back and got a master's degree in policy, went on to get a PhD really looking at how do you answer these questions around what are the societal impacts or implications when you start engineering organisms and releasing them to the environment. Throughout that process, I still kept on saying, I don't want to go back to the bench. I, there must be something else out here where I can bring all of these uh, disparate aspects together. So I went into the US government when I finished my PhD to the State Department. So I went to basically become a diplomat and advise scientists or advise policymakers on how science and technology plays out and spent a lot of time not only explaining things like CRISPR and gene editing, which blew onto the scene while I was there, but artificial intelligence, machine learning, Internet of Things, drones, like what are all of these technologies, where are they coming from, and how are they going to change relationships between countries and national security concerns, economic dominance, um, and even how societies and the general public were going to cope with these innovations and how that was going to trickle through the world. Then after five years at the State Department, I was recruited to the World Economic Forum. Um, and then from the World Economic Forum to uh, Avellino Labs, a, a leading sort of uh, biotech. Like you, I've, I've bounced around different sectors. I've, I've been a diplomat, I've been in technology, I've been in consulting other areas, and now find myself in a slightly unusual position in the UK of heading up a state-owned enterprise, so to speak, which is not, we don't have many of those. What sort of thoughts or reflections do you have, or maybe advice for people who are thinking about their career of making these changes from you know, um, farming, if we can you know, count your early career as a um, family member, to, you know, to finance, to, to government, to multilateral, to private sector. How can people do that well, or what should people think about if they're thinking about a change? When I think about the thread that really runs through all of my experiences, from that first aha moment in, in biology class. It is the power of genomics, and that is what I started out loving, and I've been able to pull that through every single one of my experiences. My graduate training, the work that I did with the US government, and then with the World Economic Forum, understanding how genomics and uh, a number of other technologies, particularly in the, in the data analytics space, were going to propel, we hope, um, healthcare, but many other areas into the next phase of their evolution. And then coming to Avellino, which is a molecular diagnostics company 
uh, out of Menlo Park, California, originally founded in, uh, in South Korea. And we do genetic testing, and that's our, our first foray into implementing precision medicine in, in the eye disease space. So pulling that thread all the way through of genomics, the power of what can happen once you start to unravel the mysteries of the human genome at that level. So I think for me, what I've been able to say when people ask that question is, if there is something that you feel intrigued and, and passionate about, I encourage, if at all possible, to keep pulling that through line through your career and be able to return to it every time you're thinking about making your next step in your career. Fantastic. And in this world, you know, the power of genomics, I want to talk a little bit first about the policy world and what you've done in the State Department and World Economic Forum. We engage with a lot of practitioners at Genomics England, you know, scientists, technologists, uh, clinicians, and so on. And you know, there's an argument that says, actually, we know what we're doing. We just need to solve these problems. We need to you know, make this technology work. We need to bring this science into the clinic. Why do we need policy? Let's start with a sort of fundamental question. What does, what does policy bring to the table to, to unlock the, the power of genomics? So within the policy space, the idea of norms and, and, and practices uh, is really, really important for understanding how to keep up with the pace of technological change. And we'll just go down the, the science and tech policy route here. Understand where that change is coming from and how to harness it in a way that is meeting the objectives of, of an institution, of an entity, of a country, um, and is really in service, when we, we hope, really in service of making the world a better place for the people who you are serving as a policymaker. So I think that the power of genomics is really no different in that regard when you think about the, uh, the surroundings and the care that must be taken when you are working with advances and in innovations in science and technology and making sure that they're properly safeguarded and that they're used for the best possible purposes and that they meet multiple objectives. And policymakers always have multiple objectives. I know you know this. Absolutely. And so I guess to, if we draw an analogy about power, there's, you know, electric power is a wonderful thing. If wires aren't coated in rubber and kind of, you know, earthed correctly, then that power can do nasty things like give you a sort of fatal electric shock or whatever, right? We're saying we need to channel the power of genomics, as you say, to a purpose, right? To, um, to the benefit of people. Okay. And so I guess as you look across this landscape and I guess think about the, the incredibly broad perspective that you would have had at the World Economic Forum, what do you see as kind of the hot topics in areas where we need to be developing policies, refining them, or sort of implementing policies in the, to unleash the power of genomics well? The most fun and kind of chaotic conversations that I always had around genomics, whether it was uh, in the pathogen space, whether it was in agriculture, whether it was in human genomics, <laughs> was about this transition space between the physical sample and the digital representation of that information. And if we are thinking about the in many, many countries' journey on their digital revolution and their ability 
to make the, uh, some being the, the, definitely the front runners, but many of them making that transition to a fourth industrial revolution type society. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll borrow a phrase from the World Economic Forum um, and, and really coining it, how do we work with these technologies which all require digital infrastructure and data to develop and to take their benefits through society. That back and forth about how do we understand something that we used to think of as a tree or a plant or a person as now code that you can ostensibly attach to an email and send to someone that you hope you know who it is, but you may not always. And so when you're a policymaker and when you're thinking at the World Economic Forum about the economic transitions and pathways that, that we're all on as countries and as industries, it's that shift, I think, between the, the physical and the digital, particularly in the biological space, that gets, um, that gets really, really fascinating. And, and is hugely powerful when done well. Right? I mean, I, I remember talking with Stefan Bansell, who's the CEO of Moderna, about the way that they got the sequence for the coronavirus. And the Chinese, had, to their credit, posted it online. Someone had literally highlighted it on the website pressed control V, <laughs> control C, control V into an email, sent it to Stefan, he forwarded the email to the team, and hey presto, you know, next thing you know, they designed the, uh, designed the molecule for the vaccine. That's a perfect um, story. <laughs> that is a perfect illustration. And I think that's really helped a lot, actually, to unpack uh, what was maybe an impenetrable kind of conversation for many policymakers, but also members of the general public, and um, seeing how Things like vaccines for COVID were developed. I, that has made it become real. And I, I would posit that we are just at the beginning of this journey of what um, the ability to move that kind of data around can, can unleash for us in a positive way. And it's interesting, actually, coincidentally, there is a bill uh, going to parliament in the UK today about making genetic modifications to, um, to plants and food. Um, again, you mentioned earlier, the kind of first wave of conversations about genetically modified food. In this country, there was a famous headline, which was Frankenfoods, um, that then led to pretty much complete uh, withdrawal um, from that space. How do you think policymakers and kind of practitioners, scientists, technologists, can kind of best work together to capture the positive opportunities of these emerging technologies while kind of managing the risks and doing so in a way that we can kind of demonstrably uh, be trustworthy in terms of on behalf of society? I really liked engaging with the end users of the innovations that you were hoping to create. I say this going back to a place I haven't thought about a lot, but if you go back to the farming community, and you really start to speak with farmers. Uh, I spoke with my father about this, actually, when we were talking about you know, what is genetic engineering and, and how is it useful. And he was an organic farmer. So actually, by law in the United States, you could not, genetically, you could not grow genetically engineered crops and be a certified organic farmer. He was just like, I, you, know, you, put the, you put a natural pesticide inside the plant and you let it go. It's so much better than, than actually spraying pesticides on, on the fields. Um, he understood it from a scientific point of view. He got it from sort of a practical and resourcing perspective. And that, you know, having, um, having allies in those spaces 
in agriculture, in um, the space of exploration of zoonotic disease control, of you know, sequencing and application of genomics for rare disease, treatment discovery, I find that the ability to really have those, those very touching, candid conversations with groups uh, about what their, their challenges is. What is the problem as they would define it? This is very hard to do, right? This, this sounds very idealistic, and it, it is to some extent. But this idea of problem formulation and who gets to define the problem, as we also heard this morning um, in, the, in the first session here on, on diversity and inclusion in genomics, who gets to define that problem is really, really important. And so that's where I, um, that's where I take heart, and um, I think there's a lot of value in spending time in that space yeah. with the communities. It's, it's interesting, this is a slight aside, but at Genomics England we're in the, in the process of sort of scoping and designing a major um, program around exploring the benefits of whole genome sequencing for newborn babies. And so we've been talking to lots of midwives, kind of new mums, new, uh, new dads, new mums-to-be, um, and just hearing about their lives. And it's so inspiring for me to listen in on some of these conversations and just, as you say, get that kind of ground truth of this is why we're here, this is what we're trying to do, right? And you can have as many 100-page, you know, sort of policy documents or, you know, multilateral government conventions as you want, but that's, that's the real, uh, yeah, that's the real ground truth. So you're now at a for-profit company, a biotech. I, I want to get into in a second to um, what Avelina Labs are doing. Before we do that, how, how do you see the interface between the kind of for-profit, uh, you know, life sciences sector and policymaking, how, how can you know, good people in good companies kind of contribute well to these kinds of debates? I loved working, particularly when I was with the State Department and of course with the World Economic Forum. Since the World Economic Forum is a membership-based organization that has uh, some of the biggest private sector and, and most cutting-edge private sector companies as, as part of our members, working with those companies but in the context of broader uh, multi-stakeholder coalitions was really the, the space that I loved the most. Um, they bring a perspective that, that complements and adds to the perspective from academia, um, from, from civil society groups, from, from government, um, from different uh, groups of the public. And I found a lot of heartening evidence particularly when there was a lot of collaboration that, that crossed those boundaries of how industry could be um, effective in creating models that policymakers could look at to say, ah, okay, so access and benefit sharing around genomic data is still an incredibly uh, difficult space. This, this was, I first encountered these challenges um, in the Nagoya Protocol implementation. The Nagoya Protocol basically says, if you're going to um, sequence and, and, and share samples of living organisms, there has to be a, a benefit for, uh, given back to, in some form, the community from which the sample came. We have not worked out how to do this. <laughs> and, and it's been nearly two decades. But when I could look at examples of, um, of companies who are trying to figure out those kind of partnership models where access was a difficult conversation, but then when included with, and what can we bring back to the table, those kinds of models could be held up to policymakers who had originally set out these treaties of like, you cannot come into my country 
and have access to my biodiversity or my influenza samples or what have you until we come to an agreement about what we're going to get back in return for that. So I think that in the case of industry and the ability to form coalitions to come up with those kinds of partnerships, there can be real power in giving real tools back to the policy community because they've set the objectives, right? We know, I think we understand, both you and I understand why a country would say, no, you can't come in and just take this. There has to be an arrangement here. And, and private sector has an important voice to play in that with the resources they bring to the table and the expertise that they bring to the table. Absolutely. And so uh, tell, us, tell us a bit about what Avelina is doing and how, I guess, some of the kind of practical examples of unleashing that power of genomics for the benefit of the people whose sequence it is, right? The jigsaw pieces all come together. Yeah. So I was really excited to, to join Avelino just a, a few weeks ago. And they are looking at their entry into the precision medicine space from the ability to give information to doctors and patients about eye, eye diseases and inherited eye diseases. And some of these conditions are relatively rare and you wouldn't necessarily know um, in time um, that you are carrying, um, I call them glitches in your DNA for the normal person um, out there, but you wouldn't really know that you were carrying a glitch in your DNA, there, that your family members might be carrying glitches in your DNA. Um, and it's really hard for um, an eye doctor to, to know this. They'll go and they'll do imaging of the eyes. But to layer on the ability to look into your genomics and see, ah, you, you're, gonna, you have a, you're carrying something that's going to lead to problems here if we take this course of treatment, a type of surgery, or perhaps we can come in and augment with a treatment that will actually strengthen the connective tissues in your eyes. Um, if we know that in your genes, you are carrying information that can help us make a better decision. So the reason why this really intrigued me is because there's nobody else really doing this in the, in the eye care space. This is kind of a one-of-a-kind company. And vision, our ability to see, I mean, I, can you argue with that, that mission <laughs> yeah. space? So um, I think this is a really exciting space. And because it's a global company with a footprint on multiple continents, um, and the, the pipeline of global growth and the utilization of genomic data to not only improve their current products in the eye space, but to develop that R&D pipeline is really where I'm going to be spending my time building those partnerships and providing, I think, a lot of that kind of strategic intelligence yeah. that I've gotten from the previous experiences help this company grow. And so the, the opportunity there is, I guess, both to read the genome to kind of diagnose and understand what's going on, but also through things like uh, gene therapies to actually edit or tweak the genome, right, to, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but like to correct the glitch, right, if you're thinking about a, a glitch that causes a specific eye issue. I guess we don't, we don't have the sort of time or space to go like too deep into the science, but help us understand at a high level what a gene therapy could look like in this space and, you know, what it would, what it would do, how would it, how would it change which DNA and which kind of cells? So I, in the gene therapy space, I think the, um, you know, that's a piece of what many of us want in our toolbox, right? So you can, the diagnostics are, are the gateway to knowing that there's a challenge. And oftentimes, um, there's a lot of discussion about if you don't have something to do once you know that there's a problem, What's the point of the diagnostic? So I think the first step in this journey is really being able to diagnose that there's going to be, that 
that you have problems in your future, or um, and then what, what is the kind of treatment. So gene therapy treatment is one of those things in the toolbox. And I would say we are in the early stages on that, um, and that there are multiple ways of administering uh, different modes of action for gene therapies in the eye. I mean, think <laughs> some have said that it uh, could be easier because your eye is right there. Um, others really could shy away from that thinking, oh my God, that's my eye. Like, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I think in, as we are working on the science for a couple of different modes of action, what will be important is to also engage with the patient community, right? Because again, I, I don't, your first reaction is like, oh, you're gonna do what to my eye? And that will, I think, be a very important process too, to complement the science that we are, are doing, is to engage with those ultimate end users. Back to the, the yeah. conversation you were having about what the, the beauty of having these conversations with the people who are gonna eventually end up adopting the technology. I mean, th this time of year, I tend to get really itchy eyes from kind of pollen as it's like late spring and, and so on. And for me, it's kind of miraculous having eye drops. You know, nowadays we can just put a couple of drops wouldn't in each eye and hey, amazing. your eyes just feel better, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, wouldn't that be amazing if that would be possible? But it's such a visceral part of the body, isn't it? It's like it's, yeah. If your eyes are itching or something, it's just you can't think about anything else. It's, it's, yeah, that's so powerful. And so I guess looking across the kind of policy uh, development process that we've talked about, the real-world experience of actually bringing genomics into, you know, diagnostics, into therapeutics, into kind of product, so to speak. We've talked a bit about engagement with end users and so on. What, are, what do you see as the, the big, I, I guess, challenges and opportunities are always kind of the flip side of each other, right? What, what are the big themes that you think the private sector, the non-profit sector, governments kind of need to be working on over the, the coming years? I would say this goes back to a lot of the data questions. And uh, you know, this, when I started the precision medicine department at the World Economic Forum under our, our healthcare practice, uh, every barrier to implementation, well not every, most barriers to implementation of precision medicine came down to questions about data. Yeah. You need the data. Um, many different types of data, but often genomic data was what everybody went to as their first port of call. And uh, you've watched the evolution of this space. Most of the people who are listening to this podcast have, have been part of the evolution of the space of understanding um, the increasing sophistication of this data, the increasing volume of this data, the increasing uh, repositories of data. and within the work that we did at the forum was really thinking about, all right, since we're the World Economic Forum, we're in a global landscape, with Avellino now operating on a global landscape, how do you uh, build the right structures, both technologically but, but policy and governance-wise, to harness the data that are coming from all of these places, whether they're countries who've decided, ah, we've got, you know, we've got to get on this bandwagon. We want to be like Genomics England. Let's <laughs> let's go for it. Um, but when all of that sits in different places around the world or in different institutions, you've got a real problem in terms of um, finding the right insights, getting that into actual R&D, and then taking products to scale. So I would say the ability to look at new ways and models of getting access to genomic and associated phenotypic data, health-related data, is 
a massive space, lots of money, lots of people playing in it, and I, I think there's a lot of progress to incoming in that, in that space. Federated data systems were the first thing that I went after when we started the Precision Medicine Work Program at the World Economic Forum. And I remember a professor at MIT saying, we've done it for transport data, and we've done it for telecoms data, and financial markets as well. And I thought, well, why? I mean, you have a multi-country, multi-institution set of pieces of, of information out there. Why can't we federate? Now, we all know. <laughs> we all know how challenging it actually turns out to be to try to build those systems, but they are they're being built. And I think this is the way that we're going to make that progress across the world. It's interesting. Um, and it strikes me there's kind of an analogy to telecoms data to some extent in that I think all of us are quite comfortable with the idea of if we're driving to the airport, we're using Google Maps or you know, other mapping software is available um, to understand what our ETA is going to be at the airport. You see that big angry purple line on the road, and you're like, oh my god, I'm going to take a detour or whatever. You know, that kind of aggregated data, there's no personal information there. There's, there's, no, there's no problem, right? Um, other elements of telecoms data is someone listening to your phone call. I think probably most of us have some big problems with around that, right? Um, is there an, does that analogy hold, do you think, for genomic data that, you know, if, if we start to aggregate more and more and desensitize those data sets to the point where broadly, I mean, everyone is a big word, but let's say most people are comfortable um, with that level of aggregation, is that, is that a starting point for this kind of international or global collaboration? Or like, how else can we bite off a piece of that you know, enormous task? I think many of your listeners will uh, resonate with the fact that this is maybe best approached on a case-by-case -case basis. It really depends on what you're trying to do and which community um, you're, you're trying to work with. And the, the level of um, detail and, and scale that you need for certain types of discovery and applications is really going to vary depending on, on what you're after. So going back again to the work that we started at the, at the World Economic Forum around rare diseases, yeah, I, you need different scales to answer different kind of questions. But I think ultimately when you have a, a family who has a, a child maybe in the NICU, um, they don't know what's wrong with it. They need a lot of information about if there's somebody else in the world, who does this person look like, what's happening with them, what's the treatment program. And so, again, I just go back to, I think it really depends on the kind of question that you're trying to answer and how much granularity you're going to need. And then that will then drive also the relationships with the providers or the stewards yeah. of that data. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? And what is the engagement process that you've, in, that you've gone through uh, to, to get access to their information? And I, guess, and I guess it's sort of one of the questions is what, what population are we talking about if we're talking populations, you know, that we know there are meaningful differences in the genome between, um, you know, people from different ancestral backgrounds and so on. And if we want to feel confident that the tools we're developing are, are relevant for everyone, then we need everyone to be in the party, I guess. But I guess a lot of people in this room, including me, lots of people who will listen to the podcast are those people whose data are in these data sets. We've talked a bit about, you know, this is the ground truth. People sometimes make slightly blasé comments about, oh, digital engagement and consent, you know, this will solve everything. 
how can we best kind of meaningfully involve such a wide range of communities and individuals in making the best decisions that we can make about how to, how to try and achieve these outcomes that can have so much benefit if we get them right? So my sense is that you're walking straight into stakeholder engagement <laughs> and how to do that most effectively. And At a global scale. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it too easy for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, that was, uh, I would say, another through line for my training and the work that I've always done. In government, again, it was a lot of multi-stakeholder engagement in order to, uh, to understand how to approach these kinds of questions. And a very, I would say, deep and nuanced understanding of the cultural, political, and socioeconomic environments in which you are operating in. And that is, I would say, um, it takes some time to develop an understanding of the, the entire context in which you are, um, you're kind of walking into in order to do the engagement that you need to bring more players to the table, to, to diversify um, your data sets, diversify your uh, participation in clinical trials, diversify and, and improve healthcare um, provision writ large. So there are very skilled people in, um, in stakeholder engagement and in social sciences, um, communications, and I often never saw them in the science community, right? There's, I think a lot of us know that it's, uh, it's not common to have a multidisciplinary team sort of embed when you are developing your, uh, your research proposal or when you're developing new products. It's not out of the ordinary, but I wouldn't say it's the norm. So we need the Avengers, you know, the sort of the multidisciplinary team, all of the all of the talents coming together. Yeah. And they're fun um, to build. They yeah. really are. They're fun to build. They're tricky to manage. They take a long time. Um, it gets gnarly. But I think anybody who's also just worked with a, a, a lab of scientists it gets gnarly too. Yeah. So you know, it's just. Uh, I think it's. I think it's a, a degree of what you're comfortable with. There's a lot of. Um, you know, forward and backwards and misunderstandings and sorting it out. And people really have to say, I'm engaged in this process. Like, I want to be here through with you. Um, and the with you is really important. I think the, the leader or the trusted party who's going to take a deliberative dialogue or a stakeholder process through is incredibly important. And so we've, we've talked about these issues which have a, a global scale. Do we need global policies in order to manage them well. And then I have a kicker question on that, which is in a world in which we're seeing decoupling and you know, uh, lots of fragmentation, is that possible anymore? We spent a lot of time thinking about this at the World Economic Forum, global policy frameworks for many different emerging technologies. When I joined the forum in 2017, it was in the context of setting up a a new policy shop uh, out in Silicon Valley in California. And it was, it was asking these questions, okay, well, if we're gonna deploy AI and machine learning into industries, is there some global set of ethical standards or principles that we should all be adhering Don't to? Don't build Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the ethics switch? Um, and I have been in a lot of those um, creative processes that aim to get at 
standard principles or, or fundamental sort of rules of the road. And I think that process is very, very valuable. Uh, everybody will come to that process for different reasons. You know, the private sector will come for their own reasons. All private sectors are not the same, so then you have to you know, think about the, the differences there. Governments will come, different parts of government will come for different reasons. It's, it's very complex. Um, the process in of itself of learning about each other and thinking th about norms and standards is important. I think the question then becomes about the implementation. So again, you write a policy and then you have to implement it. And so that's where, where my experience, the rubber hits the road. Choices then have to be made if you are going to um, adhere to a certain set of behaviors or you want certain things to happen. Choices have to be made, funds have to be allocated, the right people have to be in the room to actually define those problems and set those agendas. So yes, I think there is value at the, at the global level of really thinking this through and setting down some things that you know, we think we should be uh, cognizant of and adhere to. Then it gets very granular and more case by case when you think about what's the proper or appropriate or possible yeah. <laughs> possible, the art of the possible um, implementation strategies. Very cool. So final question for me. If we get all this stuff right, um, you know, what will that look like? What will we start to see over the next kind of five, ten years? And what kind of um, world might we be living in in, let's say, 2050, as we've just hit the net zero targets? What kind of world do you want to live in? I guess, One way I mean, we have, is benefiting I, everyone. <laughs> I think we have to ask ourselves probably that question first, but also be really aware that there's going to be a million pivots along the way. So when I was working um, at the State Department and also during my graduate training, the ability to have communities of practice, this, this was actually really, really cool. So that the, the citizen juries or, or deliberative practices where you would have a, um, a group of people from, from various backgrounds, different sets of responsibilities who over time came to know and trust each other and understand how they operated together could take many of your toughest problems if they knew each other and they kind of had their norms in place about how they were going to work together. So I don't know what the world is going to look like in the time frame that you just outlined. What I can say is that what I would like to do to get there is to be able to find and work and, and strengthen these communities who can tackle whatever it is that comes at us as we're on that journey. That is a great answer. And it, it also avoids the kind of, they promised us flying cars and we got 180 characters, you know, kind of uh, vision of the future. So I hope you will join me in thanking Jenya Dana for sharing her thoughts with us. Um, fascinating conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. 
And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.